Joining us from the University of Guelph, where he is a professor of population medicine, uh, Stephen LeBlanc is here to talk to us today about the butter controversy. Professor LeBlanc, Stephen, good morning and welcome to the program, sir. Good morning. Nice to speak with you. Well, it's great to have you on board here. Can we just uh, cut right to the chase here and and go back to this controversy, and I'll put that in quotes, uh, about butter? It all started with uh, an innocent enough remark by someone about how butter seems to be a little harder these days than it used to be. It doesn't uh, soften up at room temperature when you leave it on the counter. And somehow or another, Stephen, that morphed into what we feed cows, and palm oil became the culprit. What on earth is going on? <laughs> uh, well, we don't entirely know uh, if, if anything's going on really or, or what it is. So I guess the, the capsule would be that, uh, as you say, it started with a, an anecdotal observation, um, uh, which led to a story in the Globe and Mail from Julie Rosendahl and, and was then uh, picked up by others in social media, which was this anecdotal observation, as you said, that perhaps butter was harder or harder than it used to be. Right. Um, you, you know, we don't really know if that's the case because it was it was kind of a, a poll by Twitter, so to speak, as, as opposed to any, uh, uh, sorry for the pun, but hard data about, uh-huh. about whether the consistency had uh, of butter had changed. And, and then, as you said, also that, that morphed kind of quickly into also an, an observation that uh, cow, some cows on some farms, some of the time, uh, are fed a feed supplement in, in very low amounts, but are fed a feed supplement um, based on palm derivatives or palm oil. Right. Um, and, and the link was made, again, um, sort of in social media observations that, um, well, I guess because they, they both somehow have something to do with fat, that that, that must be uh, the cause. And, and again, that that's 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 really just not the case i mean there's it's it's possible that there's some kind of association but at, but at this point we really don't have uh, evidence that would would indicate that that's the case okay lots of questions to deconstruct here professor leblanc number one the hardness we'll get to the palm uh, stuff in a business because cul- sure. culprit i think was it was a good choice of words when it comes to that because uh, people are quite suspicious immediately of palm and it's about fat you're right but the hardness of butter business Stephen. uh all of a sudden this year it's it's anecdotal to be sure but you're you're the researcher here with with teams of people around you have you had a look at at this since since it's become so anecdotally uh out there have you had any kind of scientific look at what this might be about or is this strictly a personal remark so the we don't have the data and and so that's you know that that cuts both ways we 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 don't know that it is and we don't know that it isn't okay um and but so the process has begun uh not by me personally but by other food science uh researchers to to begin to gather some data to to try to establish is butter hard is it harder than it used to be you know or or i guess more to the point if you know if is it harder than can some consumers or all consumers want it to be those are those are all good questions sure. um and that process has begun but of course that's the that's the thing it takes it takes time to gather the data to analyze it and and, and figure it out and then and then go on from there was this seen as uh, you have lots of contacts with the dairy farmers of Canada and with, with your position there at the University of Guelph uh, was this seen by a negative by the the group that is the dairy farmers of Canada 
Well, obviously, I can't speak for for them. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not part of their association right. per se. But, but, yeah, I I think uh, what I can say is that what they've done is to put together uh, an expert committee, which I think is just in the process of being formed um, of uh, of people from food scientists to animal nutritionists to. Um, uh, consumer association representatives, and and that group is is going to look into the data, both about butter hardness, about feeding palm, about consumer expectations, and so on. And uh, and so, yeah, I think they they are taking this seriously, and and are um, are, are taking some steps to to try to bring uh, some evidence, or or actually go out and and find the data and collect the data in, in places where it's missing. Sure, you know, I, I'm, I we're certainly getting a lot of chatter about this, Stephen, but I'm I'm not hearing about any uh, real consumer backlash in terms of massive reductions of the purchase of butter by millions of Canadians or anything like that. It's more of a curiosity chat these days, isn't it? Well, I would say so. Again, I, I'm not aware of any uh, very recent data to suggest or to, to look at uh, a change in, in butter consumption, say, in the last month. Um, prior to that, actually, uh, the consumption of butter in Canada over the last year uh, has, has gone up That's a right. bit. Yeah, well, I'd heard, I'd heard that because of the pandemic and because so many more of us are staying home and cooking at home to varying degrees of success, uh, but nonetheless, using more butter and more uh, of that home cooking stuff. So you're absolutely right. Tracking sales through the pandemic, uh, uh, especially of dairy products like butter, has been very positive. It indeed has increased. So this would be a, a mild glitch, I would think, in, in terms of that success story. I think so, and as you know, some people have pointed out that uh, even though there was a you know a, a brouhaha in, in, in social media that that certainly you know made some waves uh, uh, throughout the media, um, you know people have pointed out that the the people making these comments are consumers of butter. It's right. a product they they care about, they like, they want to eat it, and so you know in in that sense, uh, it's it's hopefully a, a positive discussion in the end. Uh, p- fat is a big part of uh, discussion when people talk about butter and its uh, its attributes is certainly as a cooking agent it's fantastic but is it still uh, is it a fatty uh, substance to cook with uh, even though it's become uh, they're selling lots of it is it still a fatty uh, cooking lubricant <laughs> Well, yes. I mean, it, it it is and always has been. It's it's you know going back a, a very long time. Yeah. You, you uh, uh, skim the fat off off of milk and churn it to make butter, and that that hasn't really changed a great deal <laughs> over uh, many generations. True. So yeah, butter is about eighty percent fat, and and that's actually sort of part of the the definition of what makes butter butter. And and again, that that hasn't changed at at all. Um, and, and, and you know what's changed perhaps a little bit is and again I'm not a human nutritionist but uh, what's what's changed perhaps in the last ten years is uh, the advice and the then the perspective that you know uh, a while back fat was uh, to be avoided and was right. really seen in a bad light and, and that's kind of changed as as people have generated more data about about the the role of fat in the human diet and human health to say well actually you know that it's it's not so bad and and so that sort of uh, has been characterized as sort of giving people uh, permission, so to speak, to go ahead and and consume more butter, and, and indeed that, that seems to be what's happened. Well, it's, it's an interesting point that you make, Stephen, because you're quite right. Uh, it had its its uh, year 
years of uh, falling out in terms of popularity because uh, when we went through, and it's gone through fits and starts, as you mentioned, for hundreds of years, but uh, in, in more recent times when we've been, when we've had more data to deal with and we've become a little more health conscious, uh, butter has been on the bad list for, for a few people. And now, and now it's back because, as you point out, uh, an absence, an absolute absence of fat in anyone's diet is not a good thing. No, certainly not. I mean, everyone requires uh, a certain amount of fat. There are essential fatty acids sure. that you, you must consume to, to, to be healthy and meet uh, your, your nutritional needs. We're in conversation with Professor Stephen LeBlanc from the University of Guelph, who is the author of a piece that we saw at theconversation.com entitled, Buttergate Debunked. No evidence butter is harder due to palm supplements for cows. That has been the chatter all over the media for the past couple of weeks. And Professor LeBlanc is just sort of deconstructing uh, some of the uh, the myths involved. But, Stephen, we're talking now. This is where your, your area of expertise really shines because this is now the point where we talk about palm because all of this hardness of butter business boiled down in many conversations to, well, you know, it's that palm uh, we're feeding our our cows palm oil and palm products and that's messing with what they're giving us back so let's deconstruct some of that stuff first of all do we feed our cows palm products yes some some farmers do feed some of their cows some of the time um, fat supplements that are based on palm oil so it's not palm oil itself but um, some of the Supplements uh, have palm oil as a main ingredient. Others uh, are from byproducts of processing palm oil for human consumption. So, yes, that's true. It's, it's also not new. Oh, okay. um, that's been done for, well, at least 20 years and, and possibly longer. That was my next question. How long, we, if, if, if indeed this is the case, how long has it been in a practice, but clearly a couple of decades already? Yes. Um, and the reason for it is uh, twofold. They're sort of related. So uh, cows, like all mammals, when they calve, when they begin to lactate, make milk, um, go into an energy deficit. And so one way to try to shore up that energy deficit as they're working hard to, to make lots of milk uh, is to give them more energy-dense feed. And so, as you know, just like in human nutrition, fat is a very energy-dense Feed. And so we can supplement small amounts of fat into their diet, which otherwise consists of hay silage, grass silage, corn silage, a little bit of corn grain, a mm-hmm. little bit of soybean meal. That's sort of the, the base diet of a, of a cow's uh, nutrition. But we can supplement, um, typically it would be somewhere between 100 and 300 grams per day. Uh, and that's in, a, in a, uh, about 1% of what the cow uh, would eat in a day. Mm-hmm. And again, that's to provide her this little bit of an energy supplement, an energy boost uh, to make up for uh, an energy deficit that she would often have in early lactation, just, just as other mammals would would typically have. If we've been doing this practice, if we've been feeding our, our dairy cattle uh, palm supplements to one extent or another for a long time, let's say 20 years for a nice round number, uh, all of this hardness of butter business should have popped up a lot, a lot longer ago than last week, wouldn't you have thought? Well, yes, and, and, and so that's the, the reason for some of the, um, the, the question or the skepticism about, uh, you know, again, we're not 
entirely sure whether butter is in fact harder, but but let's even say that it is. Um, it, it's equally unclear that uh, if it's harder, that that feeding cows palm supplements would be the cause. It's possible. It, it's not a completely crazy idea that it might have something to do with it. Right, right. Um, but again. Uh, the, the amounts that are being fed, in, as far as we know, and again, incomplete information at this point, but um, b- based on contacts with the industry, it, it's, it, there does not appear to be any indication that the practice has changed uh, meaningfully o- over the last number of years recently or, or at all. It's, it's been pretty much status quo. Uh, obviously, the, you know, there's still a, a, a completely reasonable values-based question about whether, you know, we, we want to be involved at all in, in using uh, palm oil-based supplements in, in, in feeding cows. F- fair enough question. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, in terms of whether it affects the, the consistency of butter, I mean, well, I guess the short answer is we just don't know, but uh, but it certainly hasn't changed, and and so yeah, it, it it doesn't it doesn't seem to make sense on the on the face of it that that would be uh, the cause in that it hasn't changed over time. Exactly, and the and the and the title of the article that you wrote that uh, brought you to our attention in the first place, Buttergate debunked. And you go on to say, no evidence butter is harder due to palm supplements for cows. There's simply no evidence. So this is much ado about nothing and a bit of a social media dust up, if nothing else. Well, yes. Uh, again, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not in the, the, the milk selling business. Sure, but, right. but uh, you know, if, if consumers are raising questions or have concerns, those those you know, have to be taken seriously. And, um, and so it's not to, you know, dismiss people's questions out of hand, but, mm. but rather uh, to say, well, all right, if there's a question, let's, let's actually gather some data and, and either say, you know, the data say, well, actually, there's, there isn't really anything going on here. Or if there actually is, well, then let's find out why and, and make some informed decisions about what if anything, to, to do about it. And at palm oil, I should probably point out, too, that palm oil or palm oil products are very commonly used in human uh, food. And uh, you point out in the article a few examples. Uh, look at the baked goods, granola bars, and hazelnut spread in your cupboard, <laughs> and the margarine in the fridge, all containing palm oil products. Yeah, that's right. Palm uh, palm oil itself, uh, or or derivatives of it, are are very widely used in in uh, uh, in, in foods, uh, particularly in baked goods. But uh, there's also uh, derivatives or, or uh, sources of palm oil in cosmetics, in biodiesel, in in a whole wide variety of of commonly used uh, products. So you know, again, it's it's not to dismiss. The, the questions about what we're doing in the dairy industry, but that, that's a, a very small piece of, of, a, of a much bigger picture. Can I ask you just a, one final question, as, as long as we're talking about what we're up to in the dairy industry these days? Uh, we do things differently in Canada than, than they do in the States in terms of feeding our cattle hormones. Uh, what is different between the way we do it here and they do it down there, and are we continuing to do it in Canada? Well, uh, we don't feed our cows hormones, but but nor nor do they in the in the U.S. There, there's really no 
feeding of hormones to dairy cows at, at all uh, in either place. I, I, I'm guessing that what you might be referring to is uh, in the past, the U.S. had approved the use of injections of um, BST, so that's uh, recombinant bovine somatotropin, um, which was approved to in the U.S., but never in Canada. Exactly, yeah. Uh, to, to increase milk production. Right, yeah. And so um, that, that is still approved in parts of the U.S., although, in fact, um, very little used it. Um, uh, that, that sort of changed over the last 10 years. But as you say, that was never approved for use in Canada mm-hmm. uh, and, and obviously, therefore, never, never used here. Well, you know, again, it never hurts to repeat or ask a question that may be a little on the obvious side to you, the expert. <laughs> but, you know, people harbor suspicions, Stephen, and it never is a bad thing to go. That's just a silly suspicion. It's not true. Is it? Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and you know, uh, whether it's with butter or, or, or palm oil or anything else, um, yeah, we, we absolutely need to hear from consumers. And, and even if, uh, you know, even if the questions are, are you know, not terribly well informed, there's still questions and, and they, you know, they still need to be to be answered. And, and so uh, any opportunity we have to to, to share that information, I think, is a, is a good thing. Well, it's very kind of you to take a few minutes out of your weekend uh, to share some of this very important information with us and uh, stick a few pins into a few balloons and uh, do a little educating in the process. A real pleasure to have you join us this weekend, Stephen. Thank you so much for your time. Happy to have speaking, spoken with you. Have a good day. <laughs> you too, sirs. Our next guest is a member of the Canadian Senate. He is from Quebec, and he is the author of a recent piece which is entitled Canada's Foreign Policy Should Not Submit to the Wills of Dictators. Few Canadians would disagree. A pleasure to welcome Senator Leo Husakos to our program. Good morning, Senator. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Now, you and the article that you wrote were referring specifically to Recep Erdogan in Turkey, and we'll talk about him in a minute. But one of the other dictators that's all over the news this week, sir, is Putin in in uh, Russia, and his opponent, Alexei Navalny, uh, who's jailed again. Uh, but there's, there is insurrection coming in Russia that is apparently, uh, some are saying, unstoppable. I doubt that very much, but it's going to be more than inconvenient for Mr. Putin. Is that what you're seeing as well? Well, there's no doubt about it. Uh, Right now, Mr. Putin, along with Mr. Erdogan, along with the IRGC, along with China, they seem to be uh, emboldened over the last few years with the absence of of any leadership from the Western democracies. Uh, And what we're having right now is a competition to see who can be uh, the most draconian and the most dictatorial and the most disrespectful of basic human rights and freedoms. Right. And uh, this is where um, President Erdogan in Turkey comes in. He was the subject of your article uh, dealing with the Armenian-Turkey conflict that's been going on for quite some time. Mr. Erdogan, Senator, presents an interesting conundrum for Canadians and for those of us in the West, because he is indeed a member of NATO. And yet, from our distance, or at least from my distance, appears to be much cozier with the Russians and Putin than he ever could be with NATO and the West. 
Well, Mr. Erdogan has shown time and time again, uh, it's all about what's in his interest on any given moment in time. He has proven time and time again not to be a a reliable ally. Mm -hmm. And look, let's not forget, it's been decades that this NATO ally has illegally occupied northern Cyprus and has ignored UN resolution after UN resolution, has ignored uh, countless attempts uh, on the part of Western democracies uh, was called to to get Turkey to start behaving in a respo- responsible fashion. At some point in time, uh, along with the privilege of being a member of NATO, has to come some responsibility. Right. And, and the proof has been in the pudding. He has not behaved uh, worthy of, of what is a NATO ally. And I suppose what's even more disconcerting to the members of NATO is the fact that he has all the playbooks. And if he decides to turn tail and and, and uh, cozy up even tighter to the Russians, uh, they get everything that NATO has. There's no doubt. I mean, uh, that was one of the reasons I was so vociferously outspoken on the question of Nagorno-Karabakh. There was a, a case in point where uh, the Azerbaijanis invented, uh, invaded Armenia and Artsakh. And they did it, of course, with the support, full support of Turkey. Right. And despite what Mr. Putin says and the Russians, they really opened the highways, they opened the borders, and they welcomed them in. And then Russia and Putin came running back in to act like the positive player in order to be the peacekeeper in this whole process, a mess which they they initiated along with Erdogan's cooperation in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the South Caucasus is over there, the whole Balkan area, because of Putin and because of Erdogan, is a complete and utter mess. And of course, Mr. Trump, uh, just uh, while being president, it, it really it enhanced the problem by allowing Erdogan, depending on the day, to run wild in the area. Mm-hmm. And where does Canada come down in all of this, Senator Husakos? Because this, your article was about Canada's foreign policy not submitting to the wills of dictators, which would one could easily infer from that up to this point we pretty much have been. Well, Canada, once upon a time, was uh, renowned around the world for our peacekeeping uh, role, uh, our role as a, as a broker for peace and for defender of human rights. And somewhere along the way in the last few years, we've lost that, that responsibility and, I think, obligation. Prime Minister Trudeau, not only did he not speak loudly and clearly against the behavior of Erdogan in Nagorno-Karabakh, but he went a step further, something we've never seen before. A Canadian government that had imposed embargoes uh, on supplying military equipment to Turkey because of Turkey's egregious behavior uh, just a number of years ago in Syria. Mm -hmm. And what do we do? Mr. Trudeau breaks his own embargo and allows for Canadian drone technology to be sold to the Turks, which was used in that conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh, which killed thousands uh, of innocent uh, civilians, Armenian men, women, and children. Uh, And instead of of taking full responsibility, the only thing our government has done is claim that there's some hocus-pocus bogus uh, investigation that will have been done by Global Affairs Canada. That promise was made months ago to find out how in the world that embargo was bypassed. Well, you know what? In April 2019, Mr. Erdogan had a telephone conversation with Mr. Trudeau. A few weeks later, uh, the embargo was bypassed in this country by LR3, which obviously they must have gotten approval from Global Affairs Canada. Mm -hmm. And after the fact, Mr. Trudeau says, I don't know how it happened. I don't know how it happens. We're going to investigate. Right. And they've swept that under the rug. 
So it's really shameful on the part of Canada, and we should be ashamed that once upon a time we've gone from honest peace broker and supporter of human rights to allowing dictators like Erdogan to run wild without speaking out against it. Talking Canadian foreign policy here, which our guest says uh, should not submit to the wills of dictators. Our guest is Quebec Senator Leo Housakos. And Senator, I'd like to broaden the conversation beyond the Balkans. uh, And we've already talked a little bit about Russia and also to include China as we go forward talking foreign policy, uh, taking a look at the big picture in the world and where Canada fits. Uh, And we're starting to see a lot of discontent Canadian voters uh, to the tune of 80% in recent polling, uh, really uh, being quite disappointed with the Canadian government's attitude towards China, looking for more, to, put, to put, sort of put one word, looking for more backbone from the government with respect to the way we deal with China. And 80% uh, disapproval is a pretty strong message from, from the people to the government, isn't it? No doubt about it. And from the, the four terrible, egregious uh, uh, di- dictators and tyrants around the world, there's none worse than China. Uh, which not only do they have a deplorable record on human rights, but they're also an economic force and power in large part because the Western democracies uh, have encouraged them to become as powerful as they become, right. taking advantage of cheap labor and cheap products. But today they're playing a, a very, very negative role on on infringing upon our development of technology, our economy, uh, and our, our freedoms and democracies around the world that are at risks more than ever. Indeed. Uh, We did open our phone lines to our listeners, Senator, during the break, and a few of them have chosen to join us, uh, beginning with Michael. Thank you for waiting, and good morning, Michael. Well, good morning, Sterling. Good morning, Senator. Um, My question comes is directly directly about China. Okay. And uh, the the, uh, situation regarding the two Michaels right now. Um, And... I'm just wondering, given our given our relationship with China as it stands right now, and given given the uh, position that Meng, the woman who's being held here right now, uh-huh. uh, given the position that she holds within the within the infrastructure um, of the of the uh, Chinese military, once all this mess with the Michaels is cleared up. Is there any way that we can use a civilian form of persona non grata to make sure that she and her family never, ever are allowed into our country again? Hmm. Interesting question. Senator Hosakos? It is a very interesting question, and you're absolutely right. It's been now well over two years that Michael Favre and Michael Kovrig have been detained without due process without any legitimate um, accusations against them. And we all know what this is. This is uh, hostage diplomacy. Right. Uh, in the case of the ming Zhou uh, situation, this is a, a situation where we have an extradition treaty with one of the democracies, one of the great democracies and allies that Canada has. Uh, and people have forgotten that it's just uh, not a simple case. She's being accused by the American judiciary system of having her company, a Chinese state company, funnel money and launder money for the IRGC in Iran, another tyrant and terrorist around the world that constantly is threatening our democracy and our way of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, So these are very serious accusations. They're not being accused of of minor issues. No. Now, to go back to your point, sir, you're absolutely right. Mr. Trudeau has been called upon by myself in the Senate, by a number of parliamentarians from the official opposition and the other parties as well, to ban Huawei 
from our 5G technology for a number of years, and he refuses to do so. And a number of our allies, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, Senator, but it's important to point out that this is not much of an adventure for Canada, given that many of our allies, repeat our allies, have already banned Huawei 5G technology from their countries. They absolutely have. Many of the Five Eyes have. They've taken far more rigid steps towards keeping them out of their technological systems for security reasons. And again, I I, I make this point. We have two Canadians that were immediately detained uh, by China. They didn't dare detain Australians. They didn't dare detain citizens of the UK or Americans. And the reason why they don't dare is because they've seen firsthand over the last couple of years those governments, those democracies have taken action against China. While in the case of Canada-Chinese relations, every time the Chinese take abhorred action against Canada, i.e. Uh, detaining Canadian citizens, uh, i.e. putting in place export bans against our meat and our canola industry, mm-hmm. yes. what does the Trudeau government do? It cow-cows and rolls over. And that so to, the answer to your question, sorry to interrupt, no. the answer to your question, not only should we should we ban her and her family, we should have banned Huawei from Canada altogether a couple of years ago. And do you think the government of Canada is ever going to come to that point or are they going to dither in, indefinitely? I think the government of Canada should and will, but it will require a change in government. Ah, well, with that in mind, um, we are seeing a prime minister with a tremendous appetite for an election this year. Pandemic notwithstanding, he's really ready to go. The only thing holding him back right now is the very poor uh, vaccine rollout, which for which he is personally largely responsible, having tried to do a deal with China that fell apart. Um, uh, so with the vaccine starting to come around now with deliveries finally beginning to arrive uh, the pressure is starting to reduce a little bit so he's still contemplating an election this year do you senator see a canadian federal election sometime in 2021 well it's crystal clear he's trying to to go to that direction despite the fact for a number of months uh, as recently as in just past christmas he pointed out that this is not the time for an election and he's focused on vaccines and getting canada back on track uh, but i wouldn't be surprised it's not the first time we see this prime minister and this government say one thing and do the the complete opposite so uh, i i completely disagree this is not a time for an election this is a time to focus on getting vaccines to provincial governments to make sure they get them in the arms of Canadians so we can uh, overcome this this existential crisis that Canada faces and, and start focusing on getting our economy back on track. Well, it's interesting because folk, the, uh, the idea of an election during a pandemic is not without its risks. Now, we've seen here in British Columbia that the NDP government pulled a completely unnecessary uh, provincial election, uh, which worked very solidly in their favor, removing them from a minority to a significant majority position. On the other side of the country, Newfoundland and Labrador decided, well, why not try an election of our own? And that one's gone sideways. It's just completely gone sideways with an escalation in cases and inability of people to show up at polls. So regardless of, of uh, the, the, the pandemic is still uh, a, a risky environment in which to try any stunts politically, don't you think? Well, I, I look at it this way. The Parliament of Canada in no shape, way or form has served as a hindrance to Mr. Trudeau to, to 
to basically uh, operate and do what's required. Uh, they have not set up any obstacles. Uh, they have had, uh, they've been governing with the support of the NDP, the Greens and, and the Bloc Québécois for a number of months. Mm-hmm. So just on that fact alone, there's no urgency to go to the polls. Uh, and uh, you're a conservative senator, so I think I could probably ask you this fairly. Mr. Uh, O'Toole, the leader of your party, succeeding Mr. Shear, in this part of the country, Senator, is still very much Aaron who? There's no profile. People are, are very disappointed because he doesn't seem to stand for much, never gets angry, and uh, it, it seems to be uh, sort of determined to be more like Sheer than not, which is, I suspect, the wrong reason that uh, people voted for him in the first place. Look, there's, uh, there's no doubt that being leader of the official opposition is a very challenging job, particularly so during a pandemic when the prime minister has the benefit of uh, walking in front of his porch every single morning and having the media spotlight. No question. He uh, deals with a pandemic. Yep. So I think Mr. O'Toole has to, has that challenge to overcome. And I suspect the probable one benefit to having an election sooner than later is that the Canadian public very quickly during an election campaign will get to know Mr. O'Toole a lot more uh, quickly. And I think if that happens... Uh, that's one of the risk elements that Mr. Trudeau has calling an election, because right now Mr. O'Toole is is fighting for time on the ice and, and getting media space. Right. Where during an election campaign for 40 days, you'll get to see what he has and what he's made of and what he stands for. And I believe when that happens, the tide of popularity and name recognition uh, will, will serve. And I believe there will be such a clear, distinct choice between the managerial style of Mr. Trudeau's over the last few years mm-hmm. and what Mr. O'Toole has to offer. Interesting stuff. Well, as that develops and we get a little closer to it, I'd love to have the opportunity to call you back up, especially once we cross the threshold and uh, get serious about electoral politics. Senator Husakos, thanks very much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you so much. I'm Sterling Fox, joined by Sarah Cox. Sarah is back with us today to talk about Site C. She has been reporting on this story to us on this program for uh, over a year and has just released a new story uh, on the Narwhal, uh, talking about downriver communities and their concerns about Site C. Sarah, good morning and welcome back. Thank you, Sterling. Good morning to you. Uh, Sarah, joining us from Victoria, by the way, where she lives and writes for the Narwhal. Uh, Premier Horgan got up there just a few short days ago and did the damn dance all over again, uh, basically saying despite uh, the costs and delays, the government has committed to the construction of Site C, the half-built hydroelectric project on the Peace River, Sarah, now has a $16 billion price tag, new management, and a promise to keep uh, better oversight uh, going forward. What did you make of the most recent version of the damn dance? Well, um, I don't think anybody was surprised that another uh, price tag increase was being announced. Certainly the uh, amount of um, $16 billion was was quite a surprise, especially since that that came with the acknowledgement by Premier Horgan that this may not be the last price increase. So at $16 billion, this makes Site C, uh, by our calculations, the most expensive hydro dam in Canadian history and not nearly the largest dam. And uh, almost certainly we're going to see some more uh, cost overruns on this project before it's completed. Well, let's stay with the numbers for just a few 
moments, if you don't mind, Sarah, please, because uh, take us back. And we all remember the beginning of the Site C back in the days of the Campbell government. What was the original completion date and what was the original cost estimate, please? Well, when the project was announced by uh, former Premier Gordon Campbell in 2010, it was announced as a $6.6 billion project. Um, It was subsequently granted final approval by the Christie Clark government uh, four years later Mm -hmm. um, as an uh, $8.8 billion project. Reapproved by the NDP government in 2017 as a $10.7 billion project. Now we're at $16 billion. Uh, the original construction time was nine years. It's now been pushed to 10 years, and that's providing that nothing else goes wrong. Well, okay. So that thank you for that timeline because it it has been it's been with us for a very very long time. Were you surprised by the uh, by the government announcement to continue going forward? Basically, Sarah Premier Horgan said, "Look, we've got so much sunk into this thing now; it would actually be more expensive to walk away from it than it would be to complete it. So yes, let's I- get it done." Yeah, so I was not at all surprised by the announcement. I very much expected them to go uh, forward with it. It's very hard as a government to make an announcement that uh, puts people out of work, um, where you're turning around and saying, we spent this amount of money and the project will will never be completed. Not without precedent, but it's a very difficult political decision. But what, what happened basically was that they pulled some numbers out of a hat in terms of the cost. And that's what I, what I'd like to talk about a little bit. um, Basically I'd like to talk about jobs and um, the cost of, of canceling. Well, that's, that was, that was a big part of of the pitch uh, for going forward. We've, again, it's just, we've, we've sunk so much into this. We couldn't, we literally couldn't walk away. That's right. So just over $6 billion has been spent so far with, with uh, almost $10 billion still to come. The project is, if everything goes well, just past the halfway mark, not in terms of what's been constructed, but in terms of the timeline. Um, and so we were told um, at the announcement that cancelling the project right now would result in an immediate increase our hydro bills for the average residential customer of $216 per year or about $18 a month. Mm -hmm. And that was used as one reason to justify it. But independent energy experts point to the fact that that number was pulled out of a hat, largely because um, it was based on a 10-year repayment rate. And there's no reason at all why we would have to repay that debt over a 10-year period instead of, say, a 30-year period or a 70-year period. Mm-hmm. So it seemed that it was more a rationale to continue with the project than anything else. And the proper thing to do for proper oversight um, to make sure that the decision was in the public interest and, and not a political decision would have been to send that matter to the watchdog BC Utilities Commission, which sets hydro rates mm-hmm. and looks out for the public financial interest. And the BCUC, the Utilities Commission, should have been the body that determines the consequences of continuing presented different scenarios versus cancelling. 
Now, a, a lot of the uh, rationale uh, and perhaps uh, some fabricated facts to uh, and, and shore up the rationale uh, was based on the report by uh, former Deputy Minister Peter Milburn, uh, who was uh, commissioned by the uh, Horgan government to do a review of the project and uh, come up with some recommendations. I believe there were 17 recommendations. The premier said the government will adopt all of them. Uh, what what was there in the Milliken, or sorry, the Milburn report of, of significance to you, Sarah? Well, um, Mr. Milburn uh, wrote in his report that BC Hydro should have made a greater allowance for potential geotechnical risk, which has been one of the problems with the project when it sought project approval from the government. It point, he pointed out in his report that over the decades there have been many projects in this area, this very uh, unstable valley, that have had unexpected geotechnical issues despite extensive investigation and that BC Hydro should have been prepared for that. Mr. Milburn also zeroed on in the insight on of this project so he there's a few eye-popping things in his observations about that and one of them was that um, the multinational accounting firm Ernst & Young mm-hmm. produced a report <clears throat> excuse me I got a frog in my throat in May 2018 that identified many deficiencies in BC Hydro systems and BC Hydro largely disagreed with the report but did adopt some of the recommendations but then they turned around and notified Ernst Young that the contract would be terminated. We don't really know what happened next, but we do know that Ernst Young continued with a reduced oversight role. Mr. Milburn also focused in on the Site C Project Assurance Board that um, the NDP government had set up to ensure proper oversight. Right. And he pointed out that the majority of people on the board were BC Hydro directors, so that there was not enough independence on this board. There was not enough of the skill set represented on the board that would have been able to flag these problems earlier. So uh, the premiers, when he made his announcement that we are going forward, there are additional costs to be adjusted to and, and, and a longer timeline to also make adjustments to. But he also talked about oversight and uh, pr- pr- promising to provide greater oversight. And that would mean one would hope or one would infer, perhaps, independent oversight. But by the sounds of the oversight that has existed so far, Sarah, that's a stretch. Yes, and I will point out that that same promise was made in 2017 when the newly elected NDP government greenlighted the the project. And subsequently, not even a list of the project assurance board members was made public. Yeah, we got we got that list through court documents and none of their reports were made public. We, we got some of them through a Freedom of Information request. So it very much remains to be seen uh, what type of new oversight there will be and whether the findings of that oversight will be made public. So what's the next step? We've now had the formal announcement that uh, indeed this is going forward and here are the modifications and a few recommendations and so on to, to sort of tweak the project a little bit, but it is indeed going forward. What's the next Next big step. Well, one of the big problems on the project, and in part responsible for the cost overruns, are these geotechnical problems, which is basically the fact that they have they have discovered um, that the foundation of the dam and its powerhouse and spillways is not uh, stable, mm. and so that it requires 
shoring up. And what this this fix that um, BC Hydro has proposed that was approved by uh, two international experts is basically taking uh, up to 125 huge concrete pipes, like 2.5 meters apart, and sinking them the height of an eight-story building into the ground. And that the dam and the powerhouse and the spillways will be anchored to that because there isn't anything to anchor it to in the earth itself. Wow. And this is going to be the the first fix of its kind in the world because this is the first earthen-filled L-shaped dam in the world. And uh, is that where the uh, the bulk of the extra costs is coming from? The need to put these two giant pins into the ground to, to literally support the whole project? Uh, not the bulk of the extra cost, no. So what was revealed was that of the extra cost, um, half of it was attributed to these geotechnical problems and the, the fix and COVID-19 pandemic, but Mm. it was not broken. That 50% was not broken down between the two. And the other 50% of cost overruns, they were not elaborated on. So we actually don't know what they are, but they do not relate to the geotechnical problems. The Site C Dam in Peace River Country, B.C. is back in the news, courtesy of Premier Hargan and his government's endorsement of going forward. It's going to be infinitely more expensive than originally anticipated to the tune of close to $10 billion. And, of course, the completion date has been pushed back as well. Reporting to us on this is Sarah Cox, back with us again this morning from the Narwhal. Sarah's most recent column is, uh, Who Would Feel Safe? Site C Dam Concerns Build in Downstream Communities, B.C. Hydro proposed fix for geotechnical problems at Site C will be the first of its kind in the world, as Sarah explained. So, Sarah, as you talk to the people in the area, most many of whom I'm sure are working on the project, what's, what's the reaction to the most recent, we're going to get her done, uh, from Mr. Horgan? Well, um, people in the immediately downstream community of Old Fort are extremely concerned. Um, One person who lives there, Scott Campbell, told me that he thinks about it several times a day and wonders if he will be safe. And he's not feeling particularly reassured by by this proposed fix to the dam's geotechnical problems. Mm -hmm. Now, that fix was approved by by two very highly regarded international uh, safety experts. But they did say that their opinions were based on information provided by the Site C project team and that ultimate decisions and responsibilities rest with BC Hydro. Right. So there's there's concern building in Old Fort. There's also a, a lawsuit that's been launched against five parties, including BC Hydro and the provincial government, by 35 residents of Old Fort, who you may remember were evacuated in um, November, uh, tw- October, I guess it was, 2018, after a large landslide cut off the only road to their community. Mm-hmm. That landslide w- was um, reactivated and um there's great concern about the stability of the slopes around that community, and these people are now suing, um, again, five parties, including B.C. Hydro and provincial government, saying that um, 
work on on site C has compromised their um, they're alleging that work on site C has compromised their safety and the value of their properties hmm. and that the government in BC Hydro should have known that moving such a vast amount of earth so close to them would affect ground stability. How about uh, the uh, in terms of the local economy not everyone in the area of course because simply because you're a resident doesn't mean automatically that you're an employee on the dam project but Sarah what percentage of the local population is involved to one degree or another with the construction project? You said that's a very interesting question. I don't actually know the answer to that. But what I can tell you is that um, there are about 1,170 people at the Site C work camp right now. Mm-hmm. When when Premier Horgan made the most recent announcement announcing that work on the dam would continue, he said that he didn't want to put uh, 4,500 people out of work. Now, I, I just flagged that. Um, not because uh, jobs are are not important, but I just want to talk about the numbers for a minute. Sure. So, um, so he mentioned forty five hundred people. I well, remember him saying that. I remember him saying protecting is about forty five hundred jobs. Yes. Yeah. Now that's very interesting to me because BC Hydro has never said what they consider to be a job. If somebody works on the project for two weeks, is that a site C job? The W.A.C. Bennett Dam, which was built in the late 60s, a far larger project without the benefits of modern technology, that project employed 3,500 people at peak. And B.C. Hydro had said in the 90s when they proposed Site C that that it would employ about um, just under 2,200 people. So I'm not sure where they are coming up with these um, jobs figures or how exactly they are classified. We also never heard a job estimate if the project had been cancelled about how many of those people on site uh, could be put to work doing cleanup and and remediation. And, um, of course, jobs are important. They are always important. If we are going to spend $16 billion out of the public purse to create jobs, surely we could have created more jobs and more long-term jobs um, than Site C, which will only produce... Uh, permanent employment for about two dozen people after it's completed. Well, let's assume that it does get completed. What is the anticipated lifespan of the Site C dam and its ability to provide electric power to British Columbia? BC Hydro has alternately said 70 years and 100 years. So um, I'm not sure which it is. We do know that it relies 100% on the WAC Bennett Dam, which was built in the late 1960s to last 100 years. So there's some questions um, there as well. Um, about the the longevity um, of this project. The other thing that I think baffles a lot of people is this returning to the fix that you've talked about. Again, the first of its kind on the planet, because this is the first time such a dam has been placed with this design in this location anywhere on Earth. So with that in mind, why this location in the first place, Sarah? Aren't there safer places? I this location was chosen out of uh, other ones nearby, um, and it did the size of this dam was chosen over potentially smaller ones in the same area. It's very interesting that BC Hydro's own board of directors rejected this project um, in the early 1990s, hmm. in a large part due to the geotechnical concerns in this area. So, I mean, I think you have very much a 
I mean, um, you've got BC Hydro, which has always wanted to build another dam. You, you had a succession of governments of different political stripes in BC that wanted to uh, create jobs. Uh, every independent look has concluded that, that we don't uh, need the energy from Site C, that if we did need the energy, that they're, they're less environmentally uh, harmful and cheaper ways to produce renewable energy these mm-hmm. days. And it, it's hard not to, to see it just as a job creation project. Final question to you, and it's great to have you back, and we do appreciate your time, Sarah. It's always a pleasure. Uh, are you confident that the oversight that has been referred to yet again will be sufficient this time? That remains to be seen. We don't know what the composition of the oversight board is. And I think that the very best way to get oversight is to restore um, restore the work of the BC Utilities Commission, the watchdog independent, fully independent commission that looks out for the public interest. And they have been uh, basically removed from oversight of this project. The best way to get oversight for the public for this project is to restore that role of the BC Utilities Commission. Interesting stuff, Sarah. Great reporting. And by the way, friends, if you'd like to get caught yourself caught up on what's going on in the Site C Dam project, the narwhal.ca is the place to go. And Sarah's most recent article, only a couple of days old, Who Would Feel Safe? Site C Dam Concerns Build in Downstream Communities. Sarah Cox, thanks. We do appreciate all the fine work you're doing on this file. My pleasure. Have a great day. Chris Sims is with us today at 8.33 to talk about the decision by Surrey Council earlier this week to give themselves a raise at a closed-door meeting. Not the first of its kind. It's certainly not likely to be the last, but never a popular move. And this one went over like the proverbial lead balloon. Chris Sims, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning. Thank you. It's good to have you with us. Uh, What did you make of the announcement out of Surrey City Hall a couple of days ago? Well, it's interesting that they had to find it out uh, after the fact. So I think a lot of people, number one, have a problem with politicians giving themselves a raise, especially during a pandemic when many of us have seen our own salaries cut or lost our jobs. And then the other part I think that really bothers people is that it was done in secret, and then the Surrey City Council refused to answer questions about it. Uh, The Q&A that Linda Steele had on your station with the Surrey City Councillor refusing to even talk about it Mm -hmm. uh, was quite eye-opening. Well, they say now they are hiding behind the closed door nature of the meeting. They have there are, I assume, are municipal bylaws regarding the uh, the secretive nature of these meetings and the publication ban that ensues from them. But uh, it, it's you know it's a, a self created smokescreen more than anything else, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Uh, it's one of the funnier things when a politician says, "I know, but how?" and they throw their hands in the air and they say, "Oh, well, it's a policy or it's a bylaw." Well, guess who's writing those policies and bylaws? Exactly. <laughs> those same city councillors. How exactly. convenient that we can't say anything because, well, we, we wrote a law saying we shouldn't when we don't want to. We've, we've tied our own hands. Here's the rope. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, another thing that you're, you're on about these days, and you can read the whole thing, friends, at taxpayer.com. Chris wrote a piece just a couple of days ago uh, called The Carbon Tax Punishes Canadians for Staying Warm. Flesh this one out for those of us who haven't had a chance to read it yet, Chris. 
Thank you so much. So a few months ago, I went through, you know, tank by tank, what the, t- what the carbon tax costs average people to fill up very popular vehicles uh, at the gas pumps. Mm-hmm. And it's quite eye-opening, you know, things like $7 for a minivan, $11 for an average pickup truck, 16 for a bit of a bigger pickup truck. And then you do the math and project how much it's going to cost within the next nine years. Because, of course, the carbon tax is now going to go up to $170 a ton. Right. That's more than 400% bigger. So I did the same thing for home heating. Because a lot of people, obviously, uh, use natural gas for home heating. Sure. Uh, some folks use propane. And especially in eastern Canada, a lot of folks still use furnace oil. Mm-hmm. That's going to cost a lot of money. And so I went through it and I did the math and I figured out how much, on average, people are going to be paying within the next nine years. And a lot of folks... I don't know how they're going to afford it because I sent out an email asking people to send me their heating bills and I might have more than a thousand responses. Good. I was surprised. So that's a good database to work from though. It really was. Um, and uh, it's getting kind of hard to read them though because some of these folks are seniors and they're already struggling right now at paying $40 a month in a carbon tax. Mm-hmm. How are they going to pay more than four times that amount? I don't know. And back east, it's as you mentioned, it's still very popular in many parts of eastern Canada to use the old, uh, the, the, the fuel truck rolls up and uh, puts the, the, you have that big tank and it's, it's all home furnace oil. And I would assume that's more costly than natural gas to begin with, plus all of the carbon tax add-ons. It's going to make it very expensive. It is going to make it very expensive. And you're right, uh, folks in Atlantic Canada, Maritimes and still some rural areas, they still use uh, furnace oil. You know, for example, the the couple I picked out at random uh, was from Fenelon Falls, Ontario. Sure, yeah. And that's a small town. That's cottage country about in a two-hour drive north of Toronto, yeah. You know your geography very well, uh, sir. I family who lives there. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? It is. It's, yeah, you know, but so it's, it's, I would say the average oil tank is around 1,200 liters or so. Yeah. And so if you get a half tank fill-up, that's around 600 liters. And it's all ready for that couple. Um, about 60 bucks to get into just in the carbon tax, mm-hmm. not in the GST, which is added on top of the carbon tax. And so then you start doing the math and nine years will be here and gone before we both know it. Uh, that carbon tax is going to be sky high very soon. Well, now, the, of course, we're, we're waiting with bated breath uh, in many corners of the country for the announcement of a federal election sometime this year. Prime Minister positively slavering to go to the polls. But of course, the inconvenience of the pandemic is, is really cramping his style, but you get the feeling he wants to go. So because of that, there, uh, uh, what do you see by way of discussion about the carbon tax? Because the conservatives were all for banning it, and now maybe not. So where does the carbon tax stack up in, as an election issue sometime this year, Chris? Great question. So we have more than 235,000 supporters across Canada, and this by far is our number one issue. We survey our people all the time. You know, what do you want us to talk about? What do you care most about? And carbon tax, it's incomparable. Uh, People, they don't like this tax. They find it a punishment to heat their homes. They find it a punishment on the cost of food, and they find it as a punishment of driving to work. It's a tax really on everything, and so that's number one. Mm -hmm. And so what's interesting is, as of right now, and like you said, things change, the Conservatives are against the first carbon tax. And then there is the low-carbon fuel standard, which we call the second carbon tax, which they've also come out against. Mm -hmm. What we find interesting is, as of right now, they're the only ones against it. 
But there's always a chance with the NDP, and I bring this up because before Premier John Horgan was Premier, and he was in the opposition provincially with the NDP here in British Columbia, he railed against the carbon tax for these exact reasons I'm saying. He was saying it was going to cost people too much to to heat their homes and to drive to work. He's changed now that he's Premier, but there's an indicator here. He didn't jack up the carbon tax last April when he was on schedule to do so. Right. He paused it. Trudeau didn't. So we think that there's a disconnect there. So there's always a chance, federally, that maybe the NDP will flip on this and they'll realize that it's not helping the environment. Here in BC, we've had the highest carbon tax ever since it started and our emissions are going up. All it's doing is taking money from people's pockets. Interesting. I find it. Uh, I, I find it interesting that you're speculating the NDP could be convinced to participate in this in, in some way. I, I don't see it, Chris. I, <laughs> I'm an I, eternal optimist. <laughs> I know you are, but I just I just don't see the NDP walking away from any taxes, especially environmental taxes. Yep. You know, it's quite probably unlikely. You know, that ship has probably sailed within the NDP, but it used to be uh, that the NDP had a lot of folks who worked, for example, in pipelines because they were steel workers Mm -hmm. or they represented, you know, folks who were driving trucks. Um, Maybe that ship has sailed. I don't know. Uh, I still like to think that there's still a few folks within the NDP who believe that way. And though it's interesting is right now the Conservatives are, I think, angling that way. And so we'll have to wait and see who comes down against the carbon tax. As of right now, as of speaking, it's only the Conservatives that are against it. To give you an idea for natural gas, which I think more people can relate to. Here in BC, um, sure. There was a family that sent us, and I didn't even pick the biggest ones, uh, but this is just an example. There was a family in Black Diamond, Alberta. Okay. Uh, they sent us a natural gas bill for $320. That's one month from December to January. So not including the big February cold snap. And they had their carbon tax of $72. Sorry, $73. So that's on a, again, this is your bill for 320 the carbon tax was $73. Of that 320 That's correct. Let's fast forward to the year 2030. So within the next nine years, same household, same amount of fuel, that carbon tax will be $394 for one month. Ah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Uh, why aren't more people uh, more concerned if that's the way the numbers are going to tumble forward to the detriment of those required to pay the bills. I think the thing is, is that they just hear per ton and they don't do the math and realize how that's going to hit them. And so we've got all the numbers up on our website and you can do the math yourself. You know, for example, natural gas has a carbon tax based on cubic meter. Uh, oil is based on liter. Propane mm. is based on liter. Right. And all you need to do, look at your usage, and we've got the amounts right there, what it's going to be in 2030, and just multiply it. That's Ta- going to be your bills. Taxpayer.com, right? You betcha. Chris Sims is back with us. She is the president of the BC chapter of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And uh, we have opened our phone lines. Uh, John is going to join us from Langley in a second. Chris, though, just back to the story that we began our conversation with, the uh, secretive process of producing raises for members of uh, Surrey City Council. Uh, this process, of course, uh, not not popular at all. You uh, have really been busy on this file, though, in recent weeks, because your office uh, actually contacted the premier's office uh, asking for more authority for the municipal auditor general in the wake of some other uh, misappropriation of public funds up there in the Kamloops area. Uh, what, what about that? Did you ever hear back from the premier's office about the municipal auditor general? And what would that role be if it was indeed strengthened? 
We have not yet heard back. Uh, we understand it's COVID, but we would like to hear back and get a response uh, because we think this is a really great nonpartisan issue. You don't need to be, you know, any particular party to want more accountability and transparency. Mm-hmm. And so we want a big, tough team of Dobermans in the Municipal Auditor General's office that are always sitting there being watchdogs. And the moment that somebody sees, you know, spending that looks fishy, they have a place to call and they don't need to fear reprisals at work and they have a team of auditors that can keep tabs on these things at the local government level. Right. And because there's so much money and power running through our city halls now, uh, we absolutely need this as citizens and taxpayers. And so that's where we're hoping that uh, the Premier does make this a priority and makes that uh, a very good and efficient office. Okay, so there is an office, it just doesn't have many teeth right now. That's correct. It's in name only and he's shuttering it. So ah. there's like this website floating there, but it it does nothing. Okay. So if you're interested in seeing more uh, strength coming from and more um, perhaps uh, adult supervision <laughs> coming yeah. in terms of public expenses, uh, the Municipal Auditor General might have a, a role to play. Uh, did open the phone lines. Chris, let's include John in Langley uh, as we go forward. John, thanks for waiting. Good morning. Yes. Good morning. And good morning to your guests. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful topic to get on. This has been a thorn in my side for so long. My Fortis gas bill uh, i just qualify my our profile we're retired my wife and i live on a fixed income okay on a 130 or 140 dollar gas bill they charge uh, 120 some or 20 some odd dollars uh, uh carbon tax and then they also sneak in a clean levy tax on top of that for a few cents and then they add the gst on top of that now the thing that the question I have for your guest is: It's supposed to be reven, revenue neutral, right? And I would like to know a if it's revenue neutral, why even bother? And b I'd like to know uh, where am I getting this back? Where are we getting all this money back? And this is something that should be pushed and pushed. This carbon tax is nothing but a, a total tax grab. It's criminal. All right, John. Great call. Thanks very much, Chris. Over to you. So in 2008, when it was first hatched here in B.C., the politicians did call it revenue neutral. And at first, you could argue it was because there was a corresponding income tax cut that went along with the first carbon tax. But it didn't take them long, as we all know, to start fiddling with the budget books. And they started push- pushing a whole bunch of you know old tax credits that meant nothing with the carbon tax over to the carbon tax side right. to make it balance out to zero. So they were fiddling with the books. Now, they don't even call it revenue neutral. So to answer your question, it's not. The current government doesn't even call it revenue neutral. The money all goes into general revenue. Now, as far as getting money back, that's a great question, because technically right now, federally, uh, folks outside of B.C., some of them get rebates, some of them don't. Uh, they vary widely. But here in B.C., your rebate evaporates completely the moment that your two-person working family hits $59,000 per year. Ah. What's interesting about that is that you keep hearing politicians saying, oh, you know, average everyday people won't be hurt by this. We're going to give you more money back than you pay in. The average two-person family income in B.C. is $84,000 a year. So this thing gets cut off way, way below the average family. So if you're the average working two-person family here, you're probably not getting a cent back in a rebate. Interesting stuff. And yet there is this this widely held notion, as as John articulates, you know, the, when when are we getting it back? There's, you don't. There's, 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 but that's, that's the, the pitch, isn't it? Yep. The feds are even worse at it. Oh, no worries. You may have to pay a little extra at the pump or wherever, but you'll get it all back. Don't even worry about it. You 
might even get back more than you have paid out in the first place. Which makes no logical sense unless the government has a magical appreciation machine in their back in their backyard. And further, I need to point this out. Here in BC, we're being used as a template for Justin Trudeau's carbon tax. So we're the example. If we're the example and our rebates have flown out the window by the time you hit the average income, what's going to happen down the road federally? Okay, well, good to know. And and there you go. That's the other part of this down-the-road federally business because there's not a lot of talk about taxation right now, and there won't be, Chris, until after the election. What we do know, even in the absence of a budget for almost two years, we do know that we are almost $400 billion in debt and counting because we have that uh, magical money machine in the basement buying Canadian bonds at a rate of billions of dollars a week. That's the quantitative easing strategy by the central bank. All of this, and, and, and there's $100 billion not spent that they've announced that they're going to use to buy the next election with a myriad of programs. So the debt, Chris, is astonishing already Taxes have to go up, and interest rates, of course, will. So servicing the debt is going to become more expensive. Uh, I think we're not hearing a lot about taxes for a very deliberate reason. When they come, they're going to come like a two-by-four across the forehead. Yeah, it's going to be like a freight train. And this is one of the few times where we actually have the numbers in front of us with the carbon tax. We don't know what they're going to do with income tax. We don't know what they're going to do with home taxes, wealth taxes, anything like that. But we do know the carbon tax. If I can quickly give the numbers here. People can look at your bills, okay? Within the next nine years, by the year 2030, natural gas will be 33 cents per cubic meter. Propane, 26 cents per liter. And your furnace oil is going to be 46 cents a liter. So just do the multiplication. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to do it now because you, when you get your bill, it's all identified and they break it all down for you. I think they're required to. Completely different uh, curveball from left field uh, to before we wrap up. And this is on the website, taxpayer.com. Hundreds of thousands of Canadians, Chris, have signed the petition to end the expenses for former governors general. And that includes all of the preceding people to Julie Payette as well. But she certainly has antagonized an awful lot of people to the point where they is it cut her off come on she blew it cut her off exactly and my federal director uh, aaron woodrick did the petition delivery to the prime minister's office this past week this really irks people uh number one because of all the of course stories running around what's going on at rideau hall as far as a workplace goes exactly yeah it's just completely unfair that you get paid that much money and then you get a huge pension very generous and the expense accounts are pretty much limitless. You can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars every single year on anything you could imagine. And it's all paid for by taxpayers. Mm-hmm. And we don't even get to know what we're spending it on. So that really strikes people as unfair. Well, and of course, it's the lack of accountability. Uh, and, and it's part, But that's part of the Governor General's office, isn't it? It gets a budget and that's that. Exactly. And there's next to no oversight. And so we understand, you know, we're in a constitutional monarchy. They do play an an important, but mostly symbolic role within our government. Mm -hmm. That isn't the issue. It's the cost. It's the overwhelming cost. And this current governor general blew through her budget, even on her signing in ceremony. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just it's a pattern here. So, again, uh, is this petition now closed because it has been delivered to the prime minister? Or is there still a point where people who are still ticked can go sign up? 
You can still go sign up because then that means that we can stay in touch with you. And it also means to us that you still care about the issue. So we'll keep raising it in the media and we'll keep telling the prime minister that he needs to do this. What's interesting is now there is a current private member's bill on the floor of the House of Commons actually coming from the bloc, which is interesting, saying that the governor general should be somebody picked that then gets an honorarium of a dollar. Aha. It's a public service. Well, that's like Jimmy Patterson for Expo 86. He was the president of the whole shooting match, and he took one Canadian dollar for Perfect his trouble example. that yep. year. <laughs> and he ran a pretty tight ship, too, as he I did, recall. and people still love Expo when they think about it. That's yeah, right. Point. So, yeah, it, it's, it's not a charity thing. David Johnson, for example, the previous governor general, was by no means an independently wealthy millionaire kind of guy, uh, but he was a, certainly a respected individual uh, with an academic background. So uh, I, I doubt you, you don't lose money being the governor general, but it's not, it's not a money-making proposition either, or shouldn't be. Exactly. And comparatively speaking, uh, his office expenses were very low afterwards, and his swearing-in ceremonies certainly didn't triple the budget. Chris Sims, always a pleasure. It's a joy to have you on the program and stir things up a little bit. And I'm recommending taxpayer.com to our listeners this morning. You and I will talk again. Have a great day. Honored to be on the airwaves with you, sir. Ah, Chris, you. Flattery will get you everywhere, don't you know it? ICBC suffered a bit of a setback in court uh, recently when the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of British Columbia ruled that the government efforts to limit trials in minor injury claims is, well, unconstitutional. Here to talk about it is the first vice president of the Trial Lawyers Association of BC. Bill Dick QC is a personal injury lawyer with the Vancouver-based firm Murphy Batista. Mr. Dick runs the firm's Okanagan offices in Vernon and Kelowna and joins us from the OK this morning. Bill Dick, good morning, sir, and thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me uh, on your show. I've met a few of the people from Murphy Batista over the years. Bill, have you and I ever met? We have. We've actually met on two occasions. Okay, I thought I had. Well, it's good to talk to you again. It's been a, it's been quite a while. Let's talk about this ruling. Uh, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of British Columbia, no less, issuing the ruling. Uh, it's considered by ICBC to be a bit of a setback because they had, if this policy had been allowed to go forward, they projected savings of around $300 million a year to that organization. Uh, that's true. So there, there, there's two things, and, and I think it's important that we, we talk about uh, what this decision represents and what it doesn't represent. Okay. And, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about uh, the government's uh, sort of stated position that this is going to cost them hundreds of millions of dollars, which... Uh, in my view, is, is is probably not true. Well, first thing, though, Bill, let's talk about the ruling itself. What exactly sure. did uh, Chief Justice uh, Christopher Hinkson say in that ruling, declaring something, parts of that ICBC uh, proposal, to be unconstitutional? Why? Right. So uh, back in 2019, uh, ICBC and, and the NDP brought in sort of sweeping changes to you know how we uh, how we deal with ICBC claims, and one of the things that they did is said, look, uh, for minor injuries, uh, if if you know the the government or ICBC thinks that you've suffered a minor injury, you have to go through the civil resolution tribunal to make that determination, and so that's what was being challenged by by the trial lawyers in this case. Basically, what Chief Justice Hinkson said is that the government. Uh, trying to take away the jurisdiction from the Supreme Court and put it into the civil civil resolution tribunal right. was un- unconstitutional. 
Is, is that basically because, according to the Constitution, and of course I'm paraphrasing, Bill, but every citizen deserves his or her day in court? Well, that's true, uh, but the, the Constitution says that for certain, for certain types of claims uh, that the Superior Court or a federal jurisdiction court that's independent um, and impartial um, that's sort of the, the main way that people get their administration of justice. And it's only in very limited circumstances that a provincial government can usurp that function and make people go to, for example, a government tribunal. Right. Now, the Civil Resolution Tribunal is a fairly recent innovation in B.C. in itself, in and of itself. It's only about, what, three or four years old, Bill? Right. It, it actually was brought in by actually the Liberal government uh, a number of years ago to deal with relatively minor claims like strata disputes. Exactly. Yeah, and and what the government did in this case was say, well, for all minor injury claims and that determination and for all claims for motor vehicle disputes under $50,000, people had to go through the Civil Resolution Tribunal and, and were denied access to a, an independent and an, an impartial Supreme Court. And that's what we challenged ultimately, because uh, we said that, um, you know, a person should have a right to go before an independent and an, an impartial court to have their rights determined, particularly in circumstances when they're going to be interpreting government regulations. So what is what was it wrong with the civil resolution tribunal in and of itself? Was it determined by your group, the trial lawyers bill, that the composition of this tribunal was inappropriate? Perhaps the fine for dealing with strata disputes uh, and the like, but not an appropriate forum to be de- debating medical terms and conditions. Well, that's not that, that's not um, it's not exactly what what we challenged. What we challenged was the government's ability to usurp the right uh, of the Supreme Court or a court of, of jurisdiction that's independent and impartial right. and force people to go to a government-run tribunal instead of an independent and impartial court. That's what we said. And, we, and the Constitution sets out that um, you know it's only under very limited circumstances that a government can create its own new court and take away the jurisdiction from a Supreme Court. Ah, okay. So then uh, I'm I'm just trying to understand the legalese involved because you had had to take a very specific legal point and and that was your leverage in this case. And the the legal point that you chose was the Civil Resolution Tribunal is just not – because it's a government uh, agency, is uh, is there an implied inherent bias then, Bill? No, there, there, there isn't. Although, you know, whenever a, a, a government tribunal is asked to interpret government regulations and, and government legislation, yeah. it's, it's better from uh, the perspective, uh, from our perspective, that you have an independent and impartial court interpreting that rather than a government tribunal, which is what uh, the Civil Resolution Tribunal is. Yeah, I think it's also important to take just a second here and, and acknowledge that the government has, of course, responded to the the defeat uh, of, of this particular part of their, their proposal by the Chief Justice. But they did hasten to add very quickly, and this is important, Bill, that uh, this will not 
impact the ICBC rebate heading to drivers this month or the 20% insurance rate savings we're looking forward to once they, they switch over on May 1st. So this is a legal issue that's a kind of a sidebar, but in terms of the average BC driver, it's not going to determine or in any way diminish the possibility of getting a bit of a rebate check and finally a bit of a break on insurance premiums. That's, well, it's true, and, and this is what I said earlier. It, it's important to understand what this challenge was and what it was not. The trial lawyers did not challenge the government's minor injury regulations, which was the, the, the main and core legislative change that was brought in to significantly minimize how much ICBC has to pay out on claims. Right. That is still going on. They're saving hundreds of millions of dollars uh, each year by this legislation. We didn't challenge that. And, and the reality is that I think the government anticipated that there would be thousands of claims where people would challenge whether or not they fell within this minor injury uh, definition. That never materialized. In fact, there's been hardly any that have been brought before the Civil Resolution Tribunal. Uh, and so I'm perplexed by the government saying that this is going to cost them hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. And the reality is very few claims have been brought before the Civil Resolution Tribunal for determination for a couple of reasons. It's, uh, they, they did a very good job in terms of defining what a, what a minor injury is. Uh-huh. And there's, very, there's very few reasons to challenge it. Bill Dick is the first vice president of the Trial Lawyers Association of British Columbia here to talk about a recent ruling in B.C. Supreme Court that saw the efforts by the government to limit trials in minor injury claims as being unconstitutional. And Bill, in fact, this is the second setback for ICBC, uh, the same judge ruling earlier that uh, trying to limit uh, expert witnesses was also unconstitutional. So uh, that's number two. Is there a three? Because you talked about uh, you didn't challenge them yet on the matter of payout on claims. Are you anticipating a challenge? Well, I mean, the the reality is that the government is bringing in their no-fault legislation coming this May, and that the minor injury um, scheme that's in place will be replaced ultimately by the no-fault uh, scheme that's coming in in May. So it's unlikely that we're going to challenge the, the minor injury regulation. Okay. The, the new regulations dealing with no-fault uh, insurance just came out recently, I think, this past Friday. We'll certainly look at those to see whether or not they are in accord with our Constitution, whether it's the Charter of Rights and Freedoms or, or the Constitution. But they are voluminous uh, and they're significant, um, and so we don't we haven't had a real chance to review them to see sure. whether or not they're challengeable. Okay. Uh, let's. So I did open the phone line, so let's uh, talk to James in White Rock here as we uh, can include him in the conversation. James, thanks for waiting. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Well my, well, my question is, is my secondary or my comprehensive insurance is not through ICBC. It's through a private insurer, which okay. is, by the way, $600 a year cheaper than ICBC, mm-hmm. even with the rebate. What I want to know is with no-fault insurance, if I'm in an accident that I can prove is not my fault, is my insurance carrier, my private insurance carrier, still have the right to sue ICBC on the basis of charging me on a no-fault claim? Wow, good question. Bill, what do you know about that? <laughs> That's a good question. We, we, we really don't know uh, going forward just because the, 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 the guts of this uh, no-fault legislation is just coming out. Right. Uh, so we don't know ultimately how this is all going to shake out. And, and 
And certainly your, your optional insurance that I know a lot of people take through private insurance companies should be less as well. Um, just because there's less exposure um, to to claims sure. going forward. Mm-hmm. So my guess is that uh, you will be not charged more um, if you're not at fault. But I actually don't know what they're going to do because typically um, I, I believe that if you're an at-fault driver, it will still uh, increase your insurance premiums going forward. Uh, that won't change. I think ICBC is still going to charge people who are at-fault more so if you're not at fault, if someone else is at fault, then I think ultimately you should be fine. Okay, James, uh, it's it's st- so new that uh, we we don't know all the details yet, but uh, that's the sense going forward. And thanks for the call, J- Bill. There is there's a sense just in terms of a feeling, uh, and and it's there's there are ads going right now, and it, and it's all very blasé, and you know, oh, I guess we're gonna get a little reduction. Oh, and we're gonna be protected better if we get in an accident. Oh, and that's that's the very low key, no biggie kind of bu- a big budget ad campaign that's going on right now. But the sense is that underneath all of that is some kind of cap on claims. You will only be allowed to claim up to X beyond which forget about it. Right. And, and that's the whole, the whole nature of, of no fault is going. And, and yes, there is a, a significant propaganda campaign going on to try to sell it to the public. Sure is. But, but basically what no fault means is that people will no longer be able to sue a driver for compensation. The sole discretion will now be uh, vested in ICBC, both in the administration of people's care um, and the right to compensation. It will be very much like a workers' compensation scheme where you're simply paid X amount of dollars, you're being given a certain standard of care. Right. And there's really nothing you can do about it. It will be in the sole discretion of ICBC. You will no longer be able to retain lawyers uh, to hold them accountable if you disagree with them. Um, and going forward, your ability to challenge their decisions will be taken away. So you are a personal injury lawyer, and you know better than probably anybody listening to this conversation right now how how incredibly expensive personal injuries can be, lifelong in some cases, requiring you know twenty four hour attention in some extreme cases. Uh, there, uh, in many cases, though, uh, Bill, uh, the, there uh, the the costs involved, especially to a young person, can be astronomical. And to a young person to have that limited uh, early in life would be grossly unfair. And that young person would have no legal recourse to go, hey, wait a minute. That's true. And that's the uh, that's the downside to no fault insurance schemes is that uh, you're basically, you know, held to to whatever ICBC says is fair um, in terms of what they're prepared to do for you. And. You know, people, particularly who are young and they haven't established, for example, a career yet, are going to be very limited in the, the type of compensation that they're going to be able to receive under the scheme. Sure. And, and there is, I think there's going to be, as, as it all starts to unfold, a lot of people are going to be extremely unhappy who are injured people and are going to be 
having a lifelong relationship with ICBC. Well, we're talking, we've been talking about the constitutionality of some ICBC items here, two of which have been turned on by the Supreme Court of BC. Is it not, does it not strike you as being somewhat unconstitutional that you have uh, an injury through no fault of your own, uh, nothing related to no fault insurance, but you have an injury through no fault of your own for which you may require enormous sums of money to keep you alive for for the rest of your earthly days, but you're not going to be allowed to have that money because the insurance says you only get X. Where's the constitutionality of that with respect to your rights to be cared for? That, I mean, it, it is an interesting question. There, there have been two other provinces that have brought in no-fall insurance, Saskatchewan and Manitoba. Mm-hmm. They were challenged uh, on the basis of the Constitution a number of years ago, and, and the courts found that they were constitutional. But there's been a significant amount of change that's happened in, in our law since those those uh, decisions have been made. And we're going to have to have a, 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 a you know, and obviously a, a good look at what these regulations say and what this legislation says and, and see whether or not it's in accordance with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And, and we'll take a look at that and make our decision. Interesting stuff. So there'll, there'll be, um, as, as we've just found out, most of this is just very, very fresh. So you're going to need to take a little bit of time to review it thoroughly, adopt a position and publish that position. That's right. Yeah, we just haven't had a chance to review uh, these voluminous regulations sure. that have just come down on Friday. Well, maybe, Bill, once you sort it all out and, and come up with something uh, by way of a, a, a position, you can rejoin us here and we'll we'll take a look at what you've decided to do and maybe open up our phone lines again. I'd love to have a further conversation with you, Sterling. Thanks very much, Bill. It's great to have you on the program and good to talk to you again. It's been a while. It's been a while. Take care. A pleasure to welcome Linda Poole to the program this morning. Linda is the Artistic Creative Director and Founder of the Vancouver Cherry Blossom Festival, and it's almost that time. Linda Poole, good morning and welcome. Good morning to you, Sterling. It's great to have you with us today. How long have we actually had a Vancouver formal Cherry Blossom Festival, Linda? Yes. Years. It's hard to believe. It certainly is. And how famous are we for it? I mean, we know of uh, the, in Tokyo they have uh, the cherry blossoms. In Washington D.C. they have cherry blossoms. Both those cities well well known for it. Is Vancouver equally well known for our cherry blossoms? Yeah, you know, all you have to do is Google, and we always come up right near the top. You know, on the global cherry blossom scene, it's sure. amazing. And the the author of this famous book about the Washington, D.C. Cherry Blossom Festival, and she's writing a new book. She wants to include Vancouver Cherry Blossom Festival because she says we are the most robust. Well, so I love it. Well, isn't yeah. isn't that fun? Isn't it great that we uh, are smart enough to take advantage and have a lot of fun around our gorgeous Cherry Blossom Festival? Tell us about some of the activities. And of course, Linda, it's it's a COVID year, so we have all sorts of uh, safety protocols and restrictions to deal with. But hey, it's still the trees aren't going to slow down. They're still <laughs> going to be gorgeous. It's outdoors, which is already safe. And yeah. what do you got planned? What's cooking? Well, right now, even, you can go on our website and submit your poem, your haiku. And the haiku is at the heart of this festival. It's just amazing, the the ones we get in. So that you can do right now. And if you need inspiration on our website, there's tons of photographs of cherry blossoms. Okay. But it'll all really start um, the month of April. So one thing that I'm really excited to try, it's called Soundwalk Dance. So you'll download 
the uh, um, the the link and put on your earbuds and solo or maybe with a your partner or your small family bubble you'll listen and follow the prompts and the music and of course with cherry blossoms overhead sure you will just experience the most incredible it'll end up being like a dance Oh, for goodness sake. So it's like, it's, it's like when you when you go to a museum, for example, or, or a place yeah. of interest, you can take the the uh, self-guided tour with the, uh, the some kind of some kind of acoustic thing that tells you what you're looking at. So this is the same idea with a musical soundtrack to yeah. just walk around and listen and enjoy. Yeah, but you'll actually be moving your body sure. in totally new ways because yeah. So I can't wait to try that. So people sliding along the sidewalks, <laughs> just grooving down the sidewalk with their earbuds, checking out the cherries. That's going to be kind of fun to watch, isn't it? You know, it will be really fun for spectators to watch, I think, because you'll wonder if you don't know what's going on, you know, what's moving these people. But and- one word of caution that I really have to tell people, do not attempt this under on a street under uh, cherry blossom canopies. It must be done in a park or on a in a green space sure. where you'll be safe because you'll be totally into it, I'm sure. Yeah, and, and completely oblivious to the fact that there may be cars <laughs> two, two feet behind you or that kind of thing. So is there a specific location, though, uh, where you're going to uh, in, uh, invite people to go or just any green space surrounded by cherry blossoms, then you're, you're at the right place? <laughs> well, we'll rec- that's exactly it, but we will make some recommendations because oh, okay. I have some favorites spots that I just think will be awesome for this program. How many trees? Do you have any idea how many cherry <laughs> trees we have? Um, there, are, there are thousands of well, them. And do you have a clue at all, Linda? Yeah, well, it's a par- park boards help because they know how many they've planted, and then we just estimate how many on private property. Mm-hmm. And years ago, we said 43,000, so there's probably more, but that's just Vancouver, because on our neighborhood maps, you can see they're all over Burnaby, sure. you know, yeah, everywhere. So I almost think we could double it, but we've never gone, you know, we've never attempted that calculation. Uh, by the way, friends, the website that Linda is referring to, the Vancouver Cherry Blossom Festival official site is VCBF for Vancouver Cherry Blossom Festival, VCBF. .ca. And there's all sorts of, uh, it's already looking pretty fun. Uh, and as, <laughs> as we get closer to April, you'll become much more specific about times and locations, Linda. Yeah, well, the nice thing about everything we've got planned, you do it on your own time. Sure. So the other cool thing that's new is BC Blossom Photo Watch. Now that just got a little bit more exciting because we can accept 7,000 photographs And when you submit, you'll actually see your photograph in real time popping in and how it looks with all the other thousand of photos. And then in the end, we will create one Vancouver collage. Oh, and where will this be? Where will we be able to see it? Or is it strictly an online presentation? Yeah, it's online. Yeah, it's online. Uh, and I, I, I hear the disappointment in your voice, <laughs> but that's that's only because it's such an outdoorsy thing in the first place, isn't it? All of this, no. that's the, the, the best part about the Cherry Blossom Festival is that 99% of it takes place outdoors and it's yeah. free. You hit on it exactly. And something amazing happened last year because... When COVID hit, the cherry blossoms were just coming out. And there's a 
chief drone pilot for Peacemaker Filmworks, and they do all the big special effects of these movies, uh-huh. ramping up everybody's emotions, Patrick Weir. Well, he was so disappointed, and he had no work, so he created, and he couldn't get any permits for his drones, he created a little micro drone that fits in the palm of his hand. And so he went out exploring, trying to get to know our cherry blossom sites. So this year, he's actually, we've got, we'll get permitting from Park Board and City to do, with his big drones, he's doing a film to capture Vancouver in full bloom. Oh, it's going to be gorgeous. Oh, it's in that special, is it HD? Oh, my goodness. That sounds fantastic. Linda, you'll have to let us know when that is ready because uh, it sounds like something we'll want to take a look at. Thanks for joining us this morning to tip us off to the fact that one of um, certainly my favorite time of year to be in Vancouver every year is during Cherry Blossom Festival time. We'll talk once the festival gets underway. You can remind us of where the good stuff is. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Linda. The plums are coming. Uh, You got it.